Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, that we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Father, we thank you for the great promises of Scripture, that just as you literally fulfilled every promise for the first coming, you will fulfill the same for you are a promise-keeping God. Thank you that you are immutable, you never change, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we are so grateful that you have not destined those who have come to faith for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. We know, our Father, that your word teaches the very worst days in all of human history are still in front of us. When your church is removed, and you unleash the sealed trumpet in bold judgments. Oh God, may we not be callous to the fact that you have delivered us from that hour, but may we be earnest and sensitive to the people around us and to care for their souls. We ask that you would open our own hearts and minds this morning as we open your word, that we would not be here as critics, but for the Word of God to critique us, that we are not here to judge what you have said, but for your Word to judge us. So we humbly bow and ask the Spirit of God to show us what He wants to show us. And I pray for the meeting tonight as we gather with friends and visitors that meet the pastor, that you would bless that as well. We give it all to you now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to James chapter 4. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this short little letter. It's only 108 verses, and it's a very practical letter written by a very practical man. Now remember, James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and for him, our instruction needs to turn into practice. For him, our creed must be translated into conduct. Our doctrine must be transfused with duty. In a word, James is expressing a belief that behaves. And I'm encouraging you to read it once a week. And some of you have done that every single week since we've started. It only takes about 12 or 13 minutes to read through the entire book. And we have at least five or six more sessions beyond today before we're done with this short little epistle. A survey done by a leading pollster group in America reported that 40% of Americans said that they were guilty of at least one of the following, cheating on a spouse, 
calling in sick when they were not sick, telling untruths about a coworker in order to get ahead, cheating on an exam, and fudging on their income taxes. Fifty years ago, the great pollster George Gallup, of whose poll still carries his name, he said 50 years ago, it is my view as a survey researcher that we are facing in this nation a moral crisis of the first dimension. George H. Gallup was a committed born-again Christian who went home to be with the Lord some 40 years ago. And he said that ever before the tsunami of sin that is covering our nation and our world would be here. In either case, I still have to agree with the assessment that he made all those years ago that the problems facing our nation are not political, they're not economic, but they are first and foremost moral and spiritual. And of course, that's the wonder and the power of the gospel, that through a spiritual birth, anyone can be changed. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away and a new life has begun. He can begin a dramatic process to change a life if you are born again. And so James is focusing on some of the differences the gospel needs to be making. I hope you found it. It looks like it. James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. Come to meet the pastor. We will give you one. James chapter 4. We're going to focus just on two verses, but we want to begin by reading verse 7 to give us a running start. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, as you study the Bible, you learn there are two prominent themes that run all the way through it. One is the way to God. It's addressed at the lost person on how they can be saved. The other principal theme concerns our walk with God, the focus on the saved person on how we can be sanctified, how we can grow. And though James touches on both issues, his focus is largely on the latter theme. He is a man who is not interested simply in stained glass theology, but grass-stained advice. He is writing to a group of Jewish believers who are high on their orthodoxy, but very low on their orthopraxy. He wants them to take what they're learning and to put it into practice. Now, let me set the context for our passage as this book chart reminds you again, this letter, as you read it over and over again, it is quite apparent that it has three major divisions. In chapter 1, he deals with the development of our faith, and he looks at three specific problems. The problem of pain as we face trials and heartaches in this life. Then he deals with the problem of temptation, and that is followed by the problem of not applying the Word of God to our life. So chapter 1 shows us how we are to develop or to progress in our faith on a daily basis. When you come to chapters 2 through 4, you turn a corner in the letter, and the focus is on the distortion of faith. 
In chapter 2, he begins by dealing with our testimony as it relates to our relationships, to our good works. And then in chapter 3, with our tongue, and especially as our tongue is to speak the wisdom that comes from above. Then in chapter 4, where we are today, he addresses three problems that we should avoid. And so sandwiched between the opening chapter that deals with the development of our faith and the closing chapter that deals with the display of our faith is chapters 2 through 4 that deal with the distortion of our faith. And this middle section is really kind of a spirituality check with a person who says they are spiritual who may not indeed be spiritual. You see, we tend to measure our spirituality differently than God does. We might ask questions like, how often do I go to church? How many Bible studies do I attend? How much theological knowledge have I acquired? And if we come out high on those things, we deem ourselves to be spiritual. But James, the real litmus test, is how we treat one another, and as we will be reminded again today, how we speak about one another. So here in chapter 4, he focuses on the distortion of faith, and he deals with three thorny issues that were a problem in the first century church and that are a problem in the 21st century church. If you were here last time, we looked at verses 1 through 10, and he deals there with the problem of worldliness. God has called you, if you've been born from above, not to be worldly, but to be holy, to be a distinctively different person. The second problem that we will focus today in verses 11 and 12 is the problem of judging, the one who speaks unfairly about his brother. And then the third problem that we'll look at next time in verses 13 through 17 is the problem of perspective. And so in that section, he asks and answers the question, how do I as a believer headed for heaven invest my life wisely in eternity? Now, I've taken the time to give you an overview of the fourth chapter because once again, it is a reminder that our Christianity is not private and personal. It is public in its display. And what goes on in the inner recesses of the heart should show itself in a healthy way out in the public. God has called us into a community, and so he deals with communal issues here in the fourth chapter. Now, last time, again, we dealt with the problem of uh, being worldly. Today, with the problem of judging, and like in both sections, he asks and answers the question, what does it look like, and what are the solutions to that problem? So, if you're taking notes this morning, this problem of criticism this problem of having a judgmental spirit, James gives us three reasons why we should not, as Christians, judge one another. Reason number one, to judge is to respect God's people. To judge is to disrespect God's people. Please notice again how verse 11 begins. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. And once again, he is addressing one of the major themes that runs in this letter, and it's the theme of the tongue. The first time he addressed it was in the opening chapter, and then we saw that extended pericope in chapter 3, where he dealt with control of the tongue. And in this section, all of, a, all of a part of humbling yourself before God and getting right with God and drawing near to God 
is the way we speak about our fellow Christians. And so James is going to show us some spiritual implications of speaking against a fellow member of the body of Christ. And the first reason we're not to speak against one another is seen in this word, brethren. It's repeated three times in this verse, once in the plural, twice in the singular. In other words, because we are members of the same family, because we are brethren, and that's a generic word, the uh, new NASB 2020 says brothers and sisters in sisters in italics to make non-thinking people hopefully thinking. But it's a generic word used throughout the New Testament. And please notice verse 11, he warns against speaking against a brother. And interestingly, this word translated speaking against, kata means against, it means to talk down. It means to speak evil of. It means to defame. This might include gossip. It might include criticism. It might include slander. Someone who's on a search and destroy mission. But as we'll see in just a moment, it does not include being indifferent to people's moral choices or to false teachers. When you read the prophets of the Old Testament and when you read the words of the Lord Jesus, they were very confrontational at times. They were acerbic and they were sharp-tongued. But two, sadly, in our day, we have a distorted view of the Lord Jesus. We have a view that only sees Jesus as turning the other cheek kind of Jesus when we need to see a Jesus who also turns the tables over. And both are seen in Holy Scripture. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Again, you could say to speak disparagingly. Another way to translate it is running another person down. And to make matters even worse, he underscores against one another because both sides were going back and forth as he addresses this group of Jewish believers. They were running one another down. So when we speak against our brother, we're speaking against a family member. He who speaks against a brother, he adds, or judges his brother. So when you speak against your brother, in essence, you are judging your brother. Now, this word judge, krino, is a neutral word in the Greek New Testament. It can be used positively or it can be used negatively, and it all depends on the context. It has about a half different shades of meaning. It can mean to separate, to choose, to select, to discern, to evaluate, to determine, or as in this context, it simply means to condemn. And by the way, in English, the word criticize, it can be used in the same way, either positively or negatively, context determines. Now, once again, the sensitive reader of this letter will hear an echo from the Sermon on the Mount. So don't lose your place here in James 4. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we'll be going back and forth between these two texts. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 is part of a section of Scripture, 5, 6, and 7, that Augustine first called the Sermon on the Mount. It was a sermon given on an elevated place, and many of you have been there with me in Israel, and we've seen the very place. It's a class A spot where this particular sermon was given. Now, look at 7 and verse 1. That chapter opens with these words of Jesus, "'Do not judge, 
so that you will not be judged. Now, this particular verse is misquoted by non-Christians, maybe more than any other passage in the whole New Testament. The command, do not judge, is not a command against being discriminating or evaluating. But as soon as you make some discriminatory evaluation, some debauched person will come along and say, ah, judge not, lest you be judged. And this verse is taken out of context, and it's certainly one of the top 10 verses in the New Testament that is typically abused. But I want us to look at this verse in its context because the word judge is the identical word that James uses in 4.11, and it will shed a lot of scriptural perspective on how we are to understand judgment. Now, the epistle of James, you've heard me say it's the Proverbs of the New Testament because it has so many short little pithy sayings of application. But it's also repeatedly uh, compared to the Sermon on the Mount, and rightly so. If you read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, there's no less than 20 comparisons between the Sermon on the Mount and what James, the half-brother of Christ, writes in this short little letter. For instance, just consider the opening chapter of James. He opens with the exhortation, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Just like in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad when people persecute you. Or in James chapter 1 and verse 9, he spoke of the brother of humble circumstances glorifying in his high position. Much like Jesus in the Beatitudes said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or in James 1.13, James addresses the subject of temptation, just as the Lord Jesus speaks on the same subject in Matthew 6.13. Or in James 1.22, of not just hearing the word, but doing the word. And Jesus does the same in Matthew 7 at the end of his sermon on the parable of the two foundations. And of course, here in James 4.11, he's talking about judging one another, just as Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 7. And it's the same word. So remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And since the Holy Spirit inspired the whole of Scripture without a single error or mistake, when Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged, let's think for a moment first what he does not mean. First, he is not prohibiting law courts. There are some Christians in the history of the church who have concluded it is wrong for a Christian to serve as a magistrate or as a judge of sorts, and they quote Matthew 7, 1 as proof. Some denominations, even in our day, still teach that, that a Christian cannot be a judge and a magistrate and obey Matthew 7, 1. So I I hate to even address it. It's so obvious that that's not what it means. But since it is still a teaching that circulates in our country, let me just briefly comment on it. If you just read the book of Exodus, which Moses, of course, writes, and he's described as the most humble man who ever walked on the planet, God uses him as a judge. 
to adjudicate the problems that the people in the nation would have. Or you read the book of Judges, same principle. Or you read Romans chapter 13, and the myth is quickly eradicated. So the Bible teaches that there's a need for law courts, for judges, for magistrates, for police, for armies. And many times in Scripture, it is God's people who are serving in that capacity. And by the way, while we're thinking about police, we need to pray for our police. They are resigning in droves. Most Americans are asleep as to a crisis that is unfolding in our nation defunding the police. How absurd is that? To get rid of the very people that God uses to curb and to protect evil. And there are many police officers who are now somewhat paranoid, afraid that they may go to jail just for doing their job. Certainly there are corrupt police, like there are corrupt preachers and corrupt lawyers and corrupt doctors in every profession. But the hundreds of thousands of men and women who serve in that capacity serve in an honorable way, and we are to respect them. So here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is not speaking on the subject of magistrates or police, but he is focusing on the responsibility as individuals that we have one towards another. And so we don't want to take this verse out of its context. He's not prohibiting law courts for that matter, neither is he prohibiting critical thinking. Certainly, all judgment is not forbidden by this command, do not judge, so that you will not be judged. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, first, as you read the entire sermon, it is clear that the use of our critical powers is necessary and that we are called to be different from the people of this world. Jesus told us, for instance, in Matthew 5.20, that our righteousness is to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the whole key verse that unlocks the whole sermon. He is showing us the kind of righteousness that a believer who is going to enter the kingdom of God should have, unlike the phony, fake righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he says we're not to be like the hypocrites in their giving, in their praying, and in their fasting. Well, how can I possibly obey those commands unless I evaluate the performance of others first so that I know that my lifestyle is different? In addition, in the immediate context, the Lord Jesus is going to address three things, logs, dogs, and hogs. I did a sermon one time called Logs, Dogs, and Hogs. Evidently, you have to know something about a log, a dog, or a hog in order to be able to make an evaluation or a judgment. And so, for instance, in verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and tear and turn and tear you to pieces. If you've not read the Bible very much, it may sound shocking from the lips of incarnate love to speak the truth in love the way he often does. He called Herod that fox. He called the religious leaders of his day whitewashed tombs. He compared the Pharisees to a brood of vipers. And here he calls certain human beings dogs and pigs. So why does he use this designation? Because whoever these people are, they are like animals, and they are not just like any animals, they are like animals with dirty habits. The dog that he's referring to is not your little well-behaved lap dog named Fifi. 
he uses a word that describes the pariah dogs that would roam the Valley of Hinnon where the garbage was placed and the unclaimed bodies of Gentiles were dumped. He also speaks here of pigs or swine, depending on your translation. Now remember, Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians. And to a Jew, a pig was a ceremonially unclean animal that they were not to eat. In addition, uh, they were not only unclean in your ability to intake them, they were just unclean animals in general. They loved to play in the mud. And so a Jew would never, ever, ever think of taking holy food that was dedicated to God in a previously offered sacrifice and to feed it to a dog or to a hog. They would not think of doing that any more than they would think of taking a precious pearl and trying to feed it to a pig because the pig might mistake the pearl for a pea, and when they began to swallow it and found it unedible, they would indeed turn and assault the giver. And so the picture of the parable to any first century reader is plain, but what is its meaning? What is this holy thing that he references here as pearls? Well, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And if you read Matthew 13, the kingdom parables, then the pearl of great value is salvation. By extension, the gospel message, the Lord Jesus, who is the bread of life. And so Jesus was not forbidding us to share the gospel with unbelievers because that would be contradictory to his own mission in the very heart of the New Testament. And I hope you are engaged in reaching people this week. Starting next week, we're going to invite five people a week. At every entrance, every entrance, there'll be five cards for you to pick up. And I hope throughout the month of May, you will invite five people a week, especially in God's grace if we're able to reopen this month. More information coming after the elders meet this week. But I want you to be reaching out. So God is not prohibiting reaching the lost, sharing your testimony, taking someone through the plan of salvation, that would be contradictory to Christ's teaching who came to seek and to save the lost. But he is prohibiting giving the gospel to a certain kind of unbeliever. He's referring to someone who has heard the plan of salvation, but they decisively, defiantly, violently, even noxiously reject it as true. I remember hearing Dr. W.A. Criswell at Dallas Seminary, where I went when it was once a great seminary, and now they are on the edge of heading in the wrong direction. So I pray for my school, and the school I graduated from, and most of the students who are going there have no idea what's going on because they're theologically illiterate. But those men who graduated during the time that I do, there is ongoing discussions of where that great institution once departed. Well, one day we had W.A. Criswell, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, come to speak. And uh, afterwards, we had what we called a brown bag lunch, where you could interact with the speaker and ask some questions. And one of my fellow um, colleagues, so to speak, students, asked the question, Dr. Criswell, is there any one thing that you did as a pastor, and you're nearly 50 years at the time, and you're nearly 50 years of serving, that you regret that you did? And our ears perked up, trust me. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, one of my greatest 
regrets and one of the most foolish decisions I ever made was to try to debate Madeleine Murray O'Hare. Madeleine Murray O'Hare, of course, was the one who was responsible for getting prayer out of the school. She used her six-year-old son, William Murray, as the case in point, who, by the way, later comes to faith in Christ. He's the president of the Religious Freedom Coalition. So where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He's deeply committed to the Lord Jesus. In either case, she was a woman with a hatred and a venom like I never saw. Audrey and I, when we were at the University of North Carolina, went to hear her speak one night. And if you could hear a man anointed and filled by the Spirit of God, this was a woman who was filled and anointed by the devil himself. Now, at that evening meeting, she explained the substitutionary atonement that Christians preached and then went on to mock it. She talked about the resurrection. She was a confessed atheist. But Dr. Criswell was hoping that somehow through debating her, he could win her into the kingdom. But Jesus is teaching here in verse 6 that for a person who irrevocably rejects the truth, we are to withhold the gospel pearl. We are to practice spiritual discernment and the distribution of spiritual truth. Sometimes our witness needs to be discriminating. We need to think through what we're doing. I remember when I was serving as a campus pastor at the University of North Carolina, and one Tuesday evening, I went into a fraternity house and spoke to about 90 men, and you could hear a pin drop. You knew the Spirit of God was working, and that evening, 12 men gave their lives to Christ. Two days later, I was in another fraternity house, just a few doors down, about 100 students, and there was lewd, blasphemous remarks, open hostility towards the gospel that I was sharing. I mean, there was just a stubborn refusal. And for me to persist with these young men, for them to take God's precious gospel pearl and trample it under the mud, I mean, what can be more depraved than to blaspheme the Savior, to accuse Him of evil, to make fun of God's book and God's message? And so I got up and left. Now, that was one isolated event some 40 years ago. If you know anyone who works in campus ministry today, you talk about a growing hostility and opposition and hatred to the things of God. If you have a young man or woman headed off to the university, they are going to be lonely. They are going to be unique in a sea of immorality, and you need to prepare them for the day that we're living in because the number one interest of college students today in America is licentiousness. Just this week in one of the high schools in Ohio, instead of having a prom and queen and king, they they had it, two lesbians. And the parents, some of them came unglued and they went to the school board and they were just laughed and mocked out of the room. And we have a president and a vice president whom I pray for. And I feel a little bit like Elijah. How do you pray for an Ahab and a Jezebel? I mean, we're talking about some really wicked policies. 
And if you listen to our president's speech this past week and his goal in the next 100 days to affirm equality, meaning to legislate transgenderism and, and homosexuality as an appropriate way of life and to legislate righteousness out of America, that's the kind of president that we have. And so we need to be discerning. And by the way, God practices what he preaches. Jesus on occasion would leave a town and no longer give them the message because of their total rejection. And there's coming a day in the world when half of the world's population will die. It's known as the Great Tribulation period. And only those who have never heard the gospel before in power and clarity will have the opportunity during that seven-year period to receive Jesus as their Lord. Why? Because they will have definitively rejected the Lord and they will follow the Antichrist and God himself will send a deluding influence as a judgment upon them. When Jesus sent out the 12, he unfolded this important principle. He told them that they went, when they went into towns and homes and people were receptive, that they were to bless that home. But when they came to a place where there was rejection, he said, whoever does not receive you, nor heed my words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Just know there's a time when it is totally inappropriate to share the gospel, to try to force feed it on someone who's just going to throw it up all over you. You say, is there any hope for such people? God is sovereign, and we trust in his sovereignty. But there comes a time to exercise spiritual discernment rather than let someone grind the precious gospel under their feet and so when Jesus tells Christians not to judge, he was certainly not prohibiting law courts, nor was he prohibiting critical thinking or wise discernment. Put out there in the margin next to this verse, John 7, 24. All judgment is not forbidden. Listen to these words of Christ. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He says, judge but judge with righteous judgment. Now, I know that there are some people who think that you're un-American, you're un-Christian, you're just flat out wrong if you don't put your arms around everyone and say, hey, your religion, your lifestyle is as good as mine. Whatever you want to believe, whatever you want to do, as long as you're loving, it's okay. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And here is the reason why. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And if you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to address this very issue beginning in verse 15, where he states, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We are to judge. We are to view some people as not representing the Lord. That involves critical thinking. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in the letter to the church of Galatia, as we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Paul assumes that we can judge and discriminate against another gospel, a false gospel. 
In fact, in church discipline itself, when there's open, unrepented sin that brings disgrace in the body of Christ, there is to be a judgment that comes. Paul writes the Corinthians because they failed to do what they were supposed to do. And so with that man who was sleeping with his stepmother, he said, for I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And Paul uses the same root word for judge that James is using here. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2.15, using the same word, he says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, there are some liberal pastors who have accused me of being judgmental. When I referred to Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, as cultists leading people to hell, they say I'm wrong. We broadcast from Maine to Florida in a number of different locations, and I get the letters. Or if I speak out against homosexuality, or transgenderism, or fornication, or adultery, or getting high, getting drunk, getting buzzed, things that are wrong and displeasing to the Lord, they'll say, who are you to judge? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Paul explicitly says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5 that we are to be, that we are to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And if you are listening to me today somewhere in the world, and you have a pastor who's exposing error, who's exposing false teaching, who's exposing false immorality. He is not being judgmental. He is being obedient to what God has called him to do as a pastor. And you should pray for him rather than criticize him. Hebrews 5.14 says that we are to be discerning between good and evil. Look, every time you step into a ballot box, you are making a judgment of sorts. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, in trying to protect the shape at the church at Rome, points out the opponents. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he names Hymenaeus and Alexander as examples of those who reject the true doctrine and follow what is false. He was not afraid to even name people. This is not a contradiction of Jesus' command not to judge because it's not wrong to be discerning and it's not wrong to be discriminating. Listen, there are some things that are just plain wrong judgments that God has made for us. God says adultery is wrong. God says fornication is wrong. God says sodomy is wrong. God says transgenderism is wrong. There's no such thing as a hundred genders. This is utter nonsense. This is a nation that is being given over in judgment to an upside down depraved mind. There are some things like lying and stealing and envy and disrespecting the police. These are wrong things. This is not my judgment. This is a judgment God has made in Holy Scripture. But you take a stand on something that's moral and theological, and you take an absolute stand where God has taken an absolute stand, and they'll say, judge not. 
lest you be judged. And so we have a generation of teenagers. Have you read lately Generation Z and the things that they believe and the things they are ascribing to? Those born after 1993, it's appalling, it's chilling. And we have this generation of teenagers who are being sucked down into this cesspool of sin because we don't have enough men who will stand in the pulpits and say, thus saith the Lord. So we've thought here for a moment about what it does not mean. He is not forbidding the ability to distinguish between good and evil and right and wrong and truth and error. But Jesus is forbidding, as we'll see, the unmerciful, self-righteous condemnation of another individual. Put out in the margin Luke 6.36. You can turn there if you want or you can listen to it. It's an entirely different occasion, an entirely different sermon, but it needed to be heard again. Many times a sermon needs to be preached and re-preached, and you're often preaching it to people who are hearing it for the first time. And so in Luke 6 and verse 36, Jesus said, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And then Jesus says in verse 37, and do not judge and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Now, the Greek conjunction chi is the first word in the sentence, and. It's no longer in the newer edition of the New American Standard in most English translations, because sometimes we're trying to make it less wooden and more readable. But here it's, I think, important because he's inseparably connecting mercy and judgment and condemnation all together. He's talking about the kind of judgment that displeases God, that of unmerciful judgment. He's talking about the unloving, unmerciful condemnation of another person. He is speaking of that negative, destructive person who just enjoys finding fault. And that's what a judge per, judgmental person do. He is typically a fault finder. And he needs to be as generous with others as he is with himself, but he never is. He's never consistent. And sometimes a judgmental person will, will actually judge something that is absolutely right and true, but he's reading someone's motives that he cannot read. So back here in Matthew 7, when Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, he is not forbidding someone evaluating another individual in terms of morality, in terms of theology, and the like. I mean, how can you possibly determine what a false prophet is in this section if you can't make some critical evaluations? And again, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. That involves some careful judgment. For that matter, how can you obey Christ's command in Matthew 18 to exercise church discipline? Or what we just read in 1 Corinthians 5 from the Apostle Paul. Now, don't lose Matthew 7. Go back to James chapter 4. And let me read verse 11 again. James chapter 4 in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. He's, he's equating these two. So to clarify what James means by this statement, we know he does not mean what he does not mean. He is not speaking against moral choices. But he is talking about having a brotherly, loving, 
kind attitude towards one another. Not to speak against the brother, because when you speak against the brother, you're judging that brother. Now, there's a difference between a wise judgment and a judgmental person. There's a difference between judging and judgmentalism. There's a difference between thinking critically and being a critical person. And contextually, he's dealing with believers. I've underscored that three times. Once in the plural brethren, twice in the single brothers. In other words, he's not saying, all those wicked pagans out there, they're so bad we need to speak against them. Well, we do, because when you raise the law up, it's a school teacher to lead people to Christ. You lower the standard. People don't see their need. We hold the standard. But he's not talking about our dealing with a pagan world. He's talking about not those folks out there. He's talking about the folks in here. And the believers in the first century church had the same problem that we have in the 21st century church. So to judge is to disrespect God's people. Secondly, notice beginning in verse 11, to judge is to disrespect God's principles. Not only is it to disrespect God's people, it is to disrespect God's principles. Now let me read all of verse 11 this time. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now, you will notice further here in verse 11 that he tells us that not only are we speaking against a brother, we are speaking against the law. In fact, four times in this verse, I have it underlined, he mentions the law. Now, the article, the is actually not at all in this verse. Translators put it in there to smooth it out, kind of like uh, when we in America were saying, well, he went to the hospital. That's just good American English, but it's poor British English. They'd say, he went to hospital. I said, say the hospital. He went to hospital. Well, we add it in American English to smooth it out. But in some of the British translations, it's not there at all, and it's not in the Greek New Testament. Let me read it to you out of the YLT translation. He says, speak not one against another, brethren. He who is speaking against a brother and is judging his brother doth speak against law and doth judge law. And if law thou dost judge, thou art not a doer of law, but a judge of it. Now, why is this important? Because he's not talking about the law, the Mosaic law. He's talking about the principle of law that he has been underscoring in this short little letter that is to basically govern our lifestyle. If you remember in 125, he spoke of the perfect law, the law of liberty, which he further defined in chapter two as the royal law the law of Christian love. And if you were here for those sessions, we proved to you, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that the law of liberty is the law of the royal law or the law of the king. Let me refresh your mind with James 2 and verse 8. If, however, James writes, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So the royal law is the law of the king. It's the law of Christ. And we know that because it was revealed through a conversation that we studied some months back that Christ had with some of the religious leaders, with a scribe. Let me refresh your mind with that encounter as it's recorded in Mark 12 and verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. 
and recognizing he, the Lord Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? You need to understand, these people were not consumed with Facebook and the internet and Instagram. They didn't spend their time saying, who's going to win the Super Bowl or the World Series? They talked about Scripture, and sadly, we live in a day where we don't have men. Men who, because they know the Scripture, want to interact and dialogue and discuss Scripture. So they had 613 precepts. And they wanted to know what was the most important, what was the foremost, what was the greatest. And so Jesus answers him by quoting what we call the Shema. Jesus answered, the foremost is here. That's the Hebrew word Shema. So we call this commandment the Shema. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's vertical. You love God. But then verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment not commandments. There's no other commandment singular greater than these because these two are inseparable. We are to love God and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And by the way, neighbor has been expanded by the Lord Jesus in that great parable of the Good Samaritan to include any opportunity God gives us to serve. But the king's commandment the royal law reflects the king's heart. And this is what his subjects are to do. And there's no court of appeal on this. This is part of our lifestyle. In fact, he takes it and expands it even further there in the upper room in terms of expressing the quality of the royal law. Let me read to you John 13, 34. A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another, even as, that is in the same way, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Jesus calls this a new commandment, or in the words of the Apostle James, the royal law. Now understand that the word here, new, is not the Greek word new in terms of time. It is the Greek word new in terms of kind. There's nothing new about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It goes all the way back to the Torah when Moses records it. So in what sense is this a new commandment? It's not new in that it's never been addressed before, but it's new in the standard by which we are to carry it out, even as I have loved you. The standard is we are to love one another as the king has loved us. Every disciple is to love one another as Christ has loved us. John will say this in 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And in this context, the way to start by getting down dirty and real when he gives this new commandment is he gets down and he serves those men and he washes their feet. <clears throat> A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. By this, verse 35, by what? By witnessing your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 
Tertullian, the great church leader, about a century later commented that the pagans would repeatedly say, see how these Christians love one another. And of course, love took on a new meaning and a new power after Christ gave this command when he literally laid down his life in our place. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. This has nothing to do with a fireman rushing into a building to save someone. It has everything to do with the Lord Jesus who laid down his life for you. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, he made this forgiveness real and the power to carry it out possible. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. If, it's a conditional statement, if you have love for one another. The mark of the royal law, the mark of true discipleship is not the doctrinal statements you ascribe to. Some people think, by this all men, we will know we are his disciples if you are fundamental in the faith. Listen, if you know me, I believe in biblical orthodoxy. I believe not in the way the cooperative Baptists in our state are defining inerrancy. They have it in their church statements. They don't mean what Jesus meant. They say the Bible is inerrant in its ability to lead you maybe to the Lord, but not in every single word. And that's why First Baptist Church of Greenville, South Carolina is doing gay marriages. No, I believe every single word down to the tense, to the smallest jot or tittle is inspired, that there's not a single error. I believe that Christ literally, physically, actually died in our place as an object of the wrath of the Father, bearing the judgment that we deserved, that he proved his sinlessness when he didn't just spiritually get raised from the dead, but when he literally, actually, physically came out of the grave in a resurrection body. And yes, I believe Jesus is actually coming again to judge the living and the dead. But with all that said... An unbelieving world first looks at our testimony. And you can ascribe to a sound doctrinal statement, but when there's gossip and backbiting and talking and division, you don't have their ear. Jesus plainly said the badge of discipleship is love for one another even as he loved us. That's why God knows nothing of an unchurched New Testament believer. He knows nothing of these Christians who just float. He knows nothing of these Christians who just show up on Sunday morning at 11 and get in nowhere and never get their hands dirty. You can't love the people of God if you don't know the people of God. So James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks against the law, and judges the law. So this sin, one, breaks the royal law, and that we're called to love one another. And secondly, it breaks the standard that God has set for us. When we speak down on a brother, we're taking the role of a judge in a courtroom. We're putting ourselves in the place of the law. We don't even give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt that our own court system does, that the person is innocent until he is proven guilty. And so we've set ourselves up not just against our fellow brother, we've set ourselves up against God. Now there's a progression here. I hope you've seen it. To speak against a brother is to judge a brother, and to speak against the law when you speak against God's law, you have become a judge of the law rather than a doer of the law. And that does not please the Lord. Look at it. You are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. 
So simply said, when we obey the law of love, when we lay aside unfair, unjust criticism, then we're not criticizing and critiquing God's law. He doesn't call you to judge his law. He calls it to judge your life. He doesn't call you to criticize his law. He calls his law to critique you and me. We are to obey it. You know, many times a family get in the car, they leave a place like this. Happens every Sunday all across America. On the way home or at the dinner table, they have roast preacher. And they wonder why their kids grow up rebellious. Because they've undermined the authority of the word of God that is spoken by the pastor. And so they criticize the pastor. They criticize the adult Bible fellowship leader. And so they leave unchanged because they don't really come listening for a word from God. They've come to evaluate the preacher, to judge the preacher. They're circulating in their mind what they think he's doing wrong. And they wonder why they're not growing and being changed and formed in the image of Christ. It's unjust judgment. And when we do this in the family of God, we're placing ourselves in the role of a judge. Remember the Pharisees? They tithe the mint, the dill, and the cumin, the smallest spices in the garden. But what did they do? They dishonored their parents. They weren't doers of the law. They were judges of the law. Now, very quickly, we're almost out of time. In addition to judges to disrespect God's people and to judges to disrespect God's principles. Thirdly, here in verse 12, to judge is to disrespect God's place. James now shows us that when we engage in unjust judgment, we not only disrespect our fellow believer, but we place ourselves above his law, above his commandments. And in essence, we're placing ourselves above God. We're placing ourselves against the one and only judge and lawgiver. Look at verse 12. There is only one, you should circle that word one. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, James is stressing here that God alone is the sovereign lawgiver and that God alone is the sovereign judge of the universe. There's only one lawgiver. And so we are to be about obeying his law and not ours because the law originates with him and not with us. There is only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one judge. Only one has the power to destroy and to save. Moses affirmed that all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen to these words as God spoke through the pen of Moses. See now that I, I am he. And there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and, I, and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Hannah acknowledged the same truth in 1 Samuel 2.6. The Lord kills and makes alive. And this is why the Lord Jesus gave this severe and chilling warning. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. 
These verses illustrate what James is affirming. There is only one who can save and destroy, and he alone, in the sense that Jesus and James is using the word judge, have a right to judge. And when you speak down against your fellow human being, when you read their motives that you cannot read, you are setting yourselves up as lawgiver and judge, and there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Only one God, one judge, and he hasn't asked for any help from you or from me. Only one. Only one executioner. Only one savior. Because there's only one redeemer who has given that right, and so Jesus said, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. All judgment belongs to Jesus Christ because he's redeemed us with his precious blood. And since you and I do not have the power to redeem anyone, you and I cannot play the role that God is uniquely to play. He is the one who can save and to destroy. He alone has that power. So again, James is not ruling out civil courts, police officers, magistrates, discerning believers, spiritual shepherds who protect their people from false teaching. But he is rooting out the harsh, unkind, critical, judgmental, attacking spirit of someone who just comes to find fault. And when you judge a believer in that way, you are invading a territory that belongs uniquely to God. God hasn't appointed you or me to do that. As a matter of fact, the accuser of the brethren, the Bible teaches, is the devil, and you are no more like the devil when you take on that role. James, he's blunt, he's passionate, he knew the danger, and he certainly doesn't want us to cooperate with the devil. I mean, what made the devil the devil? His fall is recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Those five I will statements of Isaiah, 14 times two is 28, easy to remember. Right? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that's how I remembered it. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And every time we judge unfairly, we're living like the devil, and we are usurping the right that God alone has, and you are casting your fellow brother or sister in Christ as your servant, as your slave. When they're not accountable to you, you're to serve them. They're accountable to God Almighty. Paul will write, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. So in summary, not to judge is not to be blind to false doctrine, to wolves that are trying to destroy the church, but it is a plea to be generous, to care for your fellow brother or sister in Christ. And so think about that again as I read one last time, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Now listen to the rhetorical question that he asks. It's very powerful. But who are you who judge your neighbor? And of course, his simple answer is nobody. We are a bunch of nobodies. 
who have been saved by the grace of God. I have that word but circled in my Bible. It's one of the strongest adversities found in the Greek New Testament. He is drawing a strong contrast between the sovereign judge and fallen sinful man. Sin, it inhibits our ability to see clearly. Now, you still have your finger in Matthew? Huh? Go back, Matthew chapter 7 for just a second. Matthew chapter 7. I hope you didn't lose it. Matthew 7. This is what Jesus was getting at. Why do you look at the speck? Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? He takes this illustration from the carpentry shop where he spent nearly 30 years of his life in an apprenticeship, first for his with his dad and after his dad died. And in verse 3, he shows us that we are unfit to be judges because we are fallen human beings, that we are not God, we are not infallible. And he uses hyperbole to underscore the fallenness of man and our need to be careful when we make evaluations. Mofat, James Mofat, lived 100 years ago, did a powerful translation of the Greek New Testament that I read often. And he describes this as the parable of the splinter and the plank. The word for plank in Koine Greek was used of the joist in a home, that large supporting beam. And it's so large that if you have a telephone pole coming out of your eye, you can't get up close to me to see whether or not there's a speck there. You've got a plank of a problem of your own. And Jesus wants you to take the plank out of your eye before you can examine a speck in someone else. And it's an important principle. And it's the principle that those who are hypocritical tend to be hypercritical. Those who are hypocritical tend to be quite hypercritical. You say, what do you mean by hypercritical? Let me ask you a question. Can you see if there's a speck of sawdust in my eye this morning? You say, I can't see that far. In fact, I look blurry to some of you up there. You need to get your prescription changed. The only way you can see it is if you get up close and you look real carefully. But it would be absurd for you to see if there's a speck in my eye, if there's a two-by-four coming out of yours. So Jesus asks. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own eye? And then the first two words of verse 5, you hypocrite. The hypocritical or the hypercritical. And the hypocrite will typically find what he is looking for. You know that every church has its speck hunters. People who specialize in specks without ever taking the log out of their own eye. And they'll always find typically what they're looking for. If you come here looking for respect this morning, you'll find one. If you've come here looking to criticize, you'll find something to criticize. If you came here to evaluate this preacher, this sermon, you'll find something wrong with me because we are a collection of sinners. But I want to tell you something. If you came here to find God this morning, you'll find him, I promise you. But you see, it's really easy to have this beautiful, rosy view of ourselves in this distorted, almost jaundiced view of your fellow man. So Jesus said, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not against taking a speck out of your brother's eye. He just wants to make sure the log is out of your own eye. My father practiced ophthalmology for 50 years, 50 years of surgery. 
When he began, he told me he did cataract surgery, you'd be in the hospital for 10 days with sandbags around your head. By the time he was finished operating, he did them in the office. And he would often say, hey, I have someone coming to the home. They've got a foreign body in their eye. And it always sounded kind of spooky to us, you know, a foreign body. Ooh. But it really, it was a foreign body. Because if someone had something in their eye, it didn't belong there. It was alien. It was dangerous to the human eye. And even in the spiritual realm, we are to be spiritual ophthalmologists, but we need to make sure first our own vision is clear. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's not surprising that there's a certain exercise that leadership does in the church, as Matthew 18, 15 Affirm. We call it church discipline. Or Paul will say to the church at Galatia in the sixth chapter, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are spirit-filled, you who are spiritually mature, you who have removed the speck from your own eye, restore such a one. And the word for restore is a beautiful medical term. It was used of someone with a compound fracture where you'd bring the two bones together and reset it. Restore such a one and a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. The first century believers were involved in restoring. Their goal was not to count the brother as worthless, to throw him out as garbage, but if at all possible, to restore him. But again, James asked this powerful rhetorical question, who are you to judge your brother we need to give the accused person the benefit of the doubt, innocent of all charges. At least our courts do that. They give people a chance to defend themselves, and people judge all the time on information they don't have. Now, let me close with some applications. Number one, while God has called us to hold up His standard to the world, He has also called us to obey His standard in the church. We're called to uphold the standard before an unbelieving world. That's not unkind. That's kind. You say, well, transgenderism is okay. Homosexuality is okay. You want to live with your girlfriend before you marry. It's okay. You're doing them a disservice. You're helping lead them to hell. I don't care if it's your brother, your sister, your mother, your, your own son or daughter or grandchild. Speak the truth. So while we are called to uphold the standard to an unbelieving world, we're also called to obey it in the church. Now, this portion of Scripture that we've been studying, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, the focus, as we've seen in this whole section starting in chapter 3, is not on the lost, but on the saved. And just in the immediate context, he has given all these imperatives, all these commands, Look at verse 7. There's a total of nine initially. Submit, therefore, to God, verse 7. Resist the devil, another command. Draw near to God, verse 8. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Verse 9, be miserable, mourn, weep. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And today, this final imperative, the 10th commandment, and the apostle James, do not speak against one another, brethren. 
Again, he's talking about the church. Not the folks out there, but the folks in here. In fact, this text, when you have what they call linguists, a present active imperative, and it's negated, there's a not before it. Do not speak against one another. Whenever God treats a verse like that grammatically, he is talking about things that they're already doing. In other words, he's saying, don't ever get into this problem. If you're not into the problem, don't get into it. But he's dealing with a problem that is real and alive and pulsating in the church. And in essence, he's saying, quit it, stop it. That's the first lesson. Secondly, while God has called us to speak dogmatically about his moral absolutes, we must be careful not to speak falsely against a brother. We need to speak dogmatically against, uh, with God's moral absolutes, but don't speak falsely against a brother. You may think you've assessed the situation properly, when in reality you have not. None of us are omniscient. Many times as a pastor, we are given information that we are privy to. And in pastoral confidence, we don't share it with other people. And sometimes people will look at your decision as an elder, as a pastor, as a deacon, and they'll judge you falsely. And it's easy to draw false conclusions because only God is omniscient and we are not called to play God. A lady was in the airport and waiting for her next flight and she grabbed a tea and a bag of cookies and she thought, I'll just get a little energy here before my flight is called. And she sat there and between her and a bag of cookies was another gentleman. And she reached over and grabbed the first cookie and began to eat it. And no sooner was she enjoying her cookie, the man next to her reached over, reached into the bag, and pulled out a cookie, and he began to eat it. She thought, Am I, is this real? This guy eating my cookie? She was somewhat perturbed. She said, oh, I'm not going to let this guy disturb me. And she went for her second cookie. And no sooner had she taken her second cookie, he reached over, and he took a cookie. Well, she started to get heated, and she thinks, should I say something to this gentleman? I'm not that kind of person, but maybe I need to. And finally, he reached over for the final cookie, and he broke it in half, and he ate the half. She had had enough. She was out of there. She got into the airplane. She was steaming mad. She opened up her purse to adjust the makeup, and there was her unopened bag of cookies. You see, we think we're all-knowing. We think that we've got the preacher figured out. And we judge him. And we judge his motives. Or our brother or our sister in Christ. And we're not omniscient. And I thank God that he didn't do that with us. The one who knows us the best, loves us the most. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He was full of compassion. There's Zacchaeus down in Jericho up in that tree. He didn't say, you dirty crook, you skinflint, you robber, come on out of that tree. No, he said, Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree. I want to go to your house. I want to have dinner with you. You see, we can look at people as dirty is unworthy, 
and walk all over them. But God doesn't see us that way. He doesn't see us for what we are. He sees us for what we can become by the grace of God. And some of you are here and you are so guilty and you just feel like scum and hypocritical. And Christ died for you and he wants to give you new life and he will receive you, but you have to come on his terms through the blood of Christ. And some of you have done that, but you need to step back and say, am I the kind of person who builds up the church or am I here just to tear it down? Now, our Father, I thank you this morning for this section of Scripture. I pray today for someone who is listening to me who does not have the assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that heaven would be their home. They want it to be. They think it might be, but they've never come in faith. They've never believed what your word says, that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, because you died for all of our sin and took all of its judgment and proved your ability to do it as the sinless Son of God when you were raised from the dead that if we call on you, you will instantly and forever save us. Help someone, Spirit of God, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, I am so grateful for this fellowship of believers that are not known primarily as critics and judges. And yet during this time of COVID over all kinds of issues, you've raised up some issues where we need to be more caring and loving and not speaking against one another. So may we repent where we need to repent. May we experience the cleansing blood of Christ and walk in holiness. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.